there and welcome to the Let's Talk podcast. I'm Carrie Lloyd-Shaw, Christian blogger, wife and mum, muser and grace lover. I write and chat about a broad range of biblical subjects deeply rooted in and flowing from this focused centre that one man died for everyone. I believe that it's this truth about Jesus that makes our hope as Christians visible to others as part of a collective worldwide community of faith, the Church of Jesus Christ. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram and if you're a word nerd like me, you can check out my latest blog articles by heading on over to the website, carrieloydshaw.com. Right now though, let's talk. There's a troubling trend that's arisen in our postmodern age, an era that has also given rise to post-truth. New information platforms, social upheaval and the overabundance of global communication networks are giving this idea traction and we're seeing it take root and grow with potentially devastating consequences. This is the generation that has unequivocally waged war on gender. Firstly, what is post-truth? Post-truth can be summarised in the following way as commented on by The Conversation, a collaboration between Australian and New Zealand academics and journalists that has become the world's leading publisher of research-based news and analysis. Truth, many will assert, is merely subjective. In reality, there is no such thing as truth or the truth, only truths, plural. These are felt differently by individuals and are as real and as true as each other. All emotions, thoughts, feelings or beliefs are correct inasmuch as the person feels or believes them to be true. Validity and public opinion is based on emotional appeals, not necessarily connected to factual or provable information. In fact, facts themselves are potentially viewed as restrictive, negative, pessimistic, anti-society or phobic in nature. Post-truth is the burial of objective facts under an avalanche of emotional and personal belief. Post-truth is not only about winning votes, siding with friends, or dealing with political foes. It has more sinister effects. It is a gaslighting exercise. What is the history of post-truth? Again, the conversation offers some thoughts. More than 30 years ago, academics started to discredit truth as one of the grand narratives which clever people could no longer bring themselves to believe in. Instead of the truth, which was to be rejected as naive and or repressive, a new intellectual orthodoxy permitted only truths, always plural, frequently personalised, inevitably relativised. Post-truth discourse includes communication which is simply hot air often a clever mix of nonsense, humour and boldly presumptive assertions. It all sounds impressive, but is never based on factual objective examination of a subject. The importance of truth may be talked about a lot as part of these conversations to lend credibility to the statements or claims. Again, from the conversation. The proponents of post-truth communication relish things unsaid. Their bluff and bluster is designed not only to attract public attention, it simultaneously hides from public attention things it doesn't want others to notice, such as growing inequalities of wealth, the militarisation of democracy, and the accelerating death of non-human species. 
or that potentially arouse suspicions of the style and substance of post-truth politics. This engendered silence is not just the aftermath or leftover of post-truth communication. Every moment of post-truth communication, using words backed by signs and text, is actively shaped by what is unsaid, or what is not sayable. How is post-truth and the war on gender connected? The war on gender seems to fall squarely in the camp of post-truth proponents. We're seeing more and more in the media, in public conversation, in our schools and communities, the push for a redefining of what is meant by gender, to the point where facts and provable science relating to human biology are being discounted or ignored. Historically, gender and sex are words used to describe and define the anatomical and physiological differences between men and women. Modern terminology uses sex to refer to biological characteristics and gender to refer to the individual's and society's perception of sexuality and the concepts of masculinity and femininity. This episode is using gender and sex as defined in the historical sense. Gender has traditionally been agreed to be determined at fertilisation and confirmed or assigned at birth. Broadly speaking, and in normal fetal development, there will be 23 pairs of chromosomes, 46 in total, one of which are a pair of sex chromosomes, either X or Y. One X chromosome is always required. Two of the same sex chromosomes, two Xs, means the fetus is female. Two different chromosomes, one X and one Y, means the fetus is male. Despite seeing gender clearly defined all around us as distinct and fixed, male and female, gender is now being described as fluid or even non-existent. Descriptions such as non-binary, genderqueer, transitional or transgender are commonplace. In fact, there are now over 53 recognised and accepted terms used to describe gender now found in our vocabulary. Men and women are different in many ways. These differences include both biological phenotypes and physiological traits. Some of these differences are influenced by environmental factors. Yet there are fundamental differences between the sexes that are rooted in biology. The US National Library of Medicine has this to say. Of particular interest are sex differences that have been identified in the brain. Although the brains of men and women are highly similar, they show consistent differences that have important implications for each sex. That is, brain sex differences uniquely affect biochemical processes, may contribute to the susceptibility to specific diseases, and may influence specific behaviours. Such biological differences should never be used to justify discrimination or sexism. A recent conclusion by Professor Robert Plomman of King's College London drawn from 45 years of research and hundreds of studies, is that the single most important factor in each and every one of us, the very essence of our individuality, is our genetic makeup, our DNA. Yet gender, determined at the level of our DNA, is being increasingly thought of as fluid or unfixed. Gender can also be used to mean gender identity, now considered to be a spectrum on which you can decide on any given day which you feel you are. 
Kate Bornstein, author of Gender Outlaw on Men, Women and the Rest of Us, says this. And then I found that gender can have fluidity, which is quite different from ambiguity. If ambiguity is a refusal to fall within a prescribed gender code, then fluidity is the refusal to remain one gender or another. Gender fluidity is the ability to freely and knowingly become one or many of a limitless number of genders for any length of time at any rate of change. Gender fluidity recognises no borders or rules of gender. The idea that gender isn't rigid and fixed but rather a choice based on feelings is put forward as the higher ideal of a utopian society. Refinery29, an American multinational feminist digital media and entertainment website, says this. Ideally, we'd live in a world where everyone could exist as whatever gender they are without constantly having to explain or defend themselves. In a world like that, we might not have to put a name to a gender, but that's not where we're at right now. Instead, we live in a world where gender defaults to man or woman and society at large rarely talks about genders that exist outside that binary. Parents are being applauded for raising their children as non-gender or gender-neutral. In other words, they'll decide when they're older, or withholding announcing the gender of their child at birth as if stating a biological truth is a negative. Even asking the most natural of questions, did you have a boy or a girl, has become potentially fraught with disapproval. Reading through the statistics regarding children and gender issues is alarming, to say the least. In the UK, children as young as four are being referred for gender reassignment surgery, with 50 children a week visiting a GP to discuss gender. This is quoted from The Sun. Figures suggest a record number of kids now believe they were born in the wrong body and are being sent for controversial treatment. Children 11 and older are being prescribed powerful hormones to stunt puberty in preparation for future gender reassignment surgery. Closer to home in Australia, an estimated 45,000 school-aged children, or 1.2%, are thought to identify as transgender. Being transgender or gender diverse is now considered to be part of the natural spectrum of human diversity. Psychology Today has this to say. Gender may be the most important dimension of human variation, whether that is either desirable or inevitable. In every society, male and female children are raised differently and acquire different expectations and aspirations for their work lives, emotional experiences and leisure pursuits. These differences may be shaped by how children are raised, but gender reassignment, even early in life, is difficult and problematic. Reassignment in adulthood is even more difficult. In the mid-20th century, Dr John William Money helped establish the views on the psychology of gender identities and roles. In his academic work, Money argued in favour of the increasingly mainstream idea that gender was a societal construct, malleable from an early age. John Money's ill-advised experiment in gender identity, however, proved ultimately disastrous for identical twins Bruce, later renamed David, and Brian Remmer. Reading through the twins' story and the outcome of Money's interventions is difficult and disturbing. Quoting now from the Embryo Encyclopedia Project, 
After a botched procedure for circumcision at six months resulted in severely damaged genitals, and, on the advice of John Money, Bruce Rimmer's parents decided to raise Bruce as a girl. Physicians at the John Hopkins Hospital removed Rimmer's testes and damaged penis and constructed a vestigial vulvae and a vaginal canal in their place. The physicians also opened a small hole in Rimmer's lower abdomen for urination. Following his gender reassignment surgery, Rimmer was given the first name Brenda and his parents raised him as a girl. He received estrogen during adolescence to promote the development of breasts. Throughout his childhood, Rimmer was not informed about his male biology. When he was 14, Rimmer began the process of reassignment to being a male. In adulthood, Rimmer reported that he suffered psychological trauma due to Money's experiments, which Money had used to justify sexual reassignment surgery for children with intersex or damaged genitals since the 1970s. As an adult, he married a woman, but depression and drug abuse ensued, culminating in suicide at the age of 38. Money's ideas about gender identity were forcefully challenged by Paul McHugh, a leading psychiatrist at the same institution as Money. The bulk of this challenge came from an analysis of gender reassignment cases in terms of both motivation and outcomes. McHugh denied that reassignment surgery was ever either medically necessary or ethically defensible. To bolster his case, McHugh looked at the clinical outcomes for gender reassignment surgeries. He concluded, Although transsexuals did not regret their surgery, there were little or no psychological benefits. They had much the same problems with relationships, work and emotions as before. The hope that they would emerge now from their emotional difficulties to flourish psychologically had not been fulfilled. There is no doubt that there is a marked increase in children, young adults and adults who are distressed with their assigned gender. Gender dysphoria is a real and observable phenomenon. Yet surely gender reassignment is not the solution, but simply a band-aid approach to a deeper, far greater and more serious issue. Let's talk about intelligent design. Let's talk about God. In Genesis 5 verse 2, we're told this, that he, God, created them, male and female, and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. The Bible, once considered a verifiable source and its author, the intelligent designer of all creation, states that humanity's genders were clearly defined from the beginning as male and female. Biblical language throughout all 66 books confirms this by using specific pronouns such as he and she, gender-specific and certainly not ambiguous. Jesus himself believed and confirmed the Genesis record in Matthew 19 verse 4 and also in Mark 10 verse 6, saying, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? The differences between the genders are unique and distinctive, both designed by God with purpose in mind. Both genders are intrinsically valuable and precious to God, and we see his characteristics displayed by the perfect merging of both the masculine and feminine traits. These distinct genders are the fundamental building blocks of God's creation and are part of God's plan for his family. His definition of marriage, Genesis 2 verse 24, and the procreation of the species, Genesis 1 verse 28, 
is the natural outcome of the union of male and female and clearly supports the biological truth embedded in our DNA. The diversity found in humanity is to be celebrated at the same time as the definitive nature of our gender is to be applauded. Furthermore, the church, or the body of Christ, is described in poetic language as a bride, female, with Christ as the groom, male, the symbolic language echoing the reality of human biology. We find this in Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33. Quoting now from crossways.org, we have this comment. While technically God's design for man and woman may not be a salvation truth, practically it is indispensable for every person to know and experience in order to live their lives as followers of Christ in this world, as beings created by God as male or female by design and for a purpose. Yet the rejection of a creator, of intelligent and purposeful design, or a greater purpose at work, leads to the inevitable outcomes that we are seeing take root in today's society. We are being encouraged to believe that there is no truth, only truths, each individual's truth as true as any other, and subjective at that. Definitions and boundaries are deemed to be outdated and irrelevant, and it seems gender won't be the only casualty to result from the post-truth era. Reason and the pursuit of knowledge and understanding are being lost in the clamour of opinion and emotional verification, and in their place we find an epidemic of narcissism, arrogance and cynicism. Come now and let us reason together, God says in Isaiah. Although his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than ours, he encourages humans in the pursuit of knowledge. He takes pleasure in the reasoning of the human mind and the desire of humanity to understand the intricacies he has created. The final word belongs to Dr. Paul McHugh, quoted from the Washington Post. In a recent interview from his home in Baltimore, where he still sees patients, McHugh explained that the duty of all doctors who propose a treatment is to know the nature of the problem they propose to treat. The issue of transgender people is... The vast majority coming for surgery now don't have a biological reason, but a psychosocial reason. While McHugh successfully lobbied for more than 30 years to keep gender reassignment surgery from becoming a Medicare benefit, he supports the operation for those born with an intersex condition, which means having a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fall into the typical definition of male or female. People with abnormalities of development should be helped to find their place as they see it best, McHugh said. But they are a tiny number of the transgender population seeking and being given treatment. I recognise that this is a controversial topic and one that is being fiercely debated all around the world and from both points of view. I also acknowledge that my opinions and thoughts on the matter are obviously based on a certain worldview and my belief in an intelligent designer, God, and that you, the listener, may not share these views. This episode is not intended to be offensive or divisive in nature, but rather to open a channel of respectful conversation about a subject that is deeply important to many people. I do not encourage discrimination, hate speech, or sexism towards anyone at any time, but, particularly in this instance, toward anyone who does not share this point of view.